0: Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. We're a church family in North Carolina with a vision for people to experience the grace of Jesus, be filled with the Father's love, and to release the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's this week's message from Chapel Hill. About a month ago, uh, my amazing wife preached back-to-back messages. How many people remember that? Uh, And uh, one of the things that stood out to me in those messages uh, was that you are not alone. And now how often we, uh, even as Christians, we can battle fear, and often that fear is built on a lie. And that, that lie is that I'm alone, or I'm, I'm the only one. How many has ever, have ever been there? But as she quoted from one of our spiritual grandfathers, that all fear is built on a lie. Deal with the lie, and fear will die. It was like a word that came to us from heaven. However, as we're going to read this morning, Paul lays out that I don't even permit a woman to teach in the church. Let a woman be quiet and not only teach but not let her not speak. So what's up with that? This is part 4 on women in ministry. I'm calling this the affirmation understanding Paul's heart for women through the Father's heart. What's up with that? Do we just kind of gloss over those scriptures? Do we not care? No, quite to the contrary. Actually, we care a great deal. And what I want to bring to you this morning is an affirmation that we're going to see in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul that came right in line with the Father's heart as exemplified through the man Jesus. Because remember, I keep saying this over and over. Jesus is perfect theology. You must start your interpretation of Paul's words Through the lens of Jesus, not the other way around. Are you with me? So I was just using Sarah's messages as an example to just exemplify like, yes, we care deeply. We're deeply committed to the Word of God. Not just the words we like, but the words that we may struggle to understand. We're deeply committed to this is my iPad version, but are you committed to the Bible? Are you committed to daily being in the Bible? Are you committed to daily diving in and saying, this is what my pastor taught me that he prays every morning before reading the scripture. And I just love this Holy spirit. May I read these words in a way in which you wrote them in Jesus name. Amen. Don't you love that? Not what I want to understand or what my preferences are, or what I like to make the scripture say to fit my agenda. How many know that in world history, The church and Christians did that wrongly in a lot of situations, in a a lot of ways. We don't want to make that mistake. Forgive me, I have uh, kind of been battling a cold this this weekend, so if I have to take some sips of water, I ask for your patience. In part one, we're calling it uh, Women in Ministry, the Restoration. Looking at from Eve in the Garden, to Jesus' restoration in the New Covenant. In part two and three, we're calling it Women in Ministry the Redemption, a look at the women surrounding Jesus' ministry. So today, and this is the final one, and uh, I, I hope that my heart is, is this. My heart is that while I realize that I might be speaking to the, as they say, the preaching to the choir, I may be speaking to some of you who are convinced on this issue biblically. Even if that's the case, the main goal of this series is to bring healing and reconciliation. Because I believe we're in a season where real unity and reconciliation, not just among ethnicities, but among genders, is sorely needed, is badly needed. Because we are approaching, an end, we, I believe we're in the end time harvest. I believe it's already started. We may not see it in our room today. We may, not, but I believe God is going is he he's birthing a movement of His Spirit that's absolutely global. Judah and I are getting ready to go to the Middle East to train up new Christians. We're going at the end of January to Abby and Samuel's Discipleship School. Twenty weeks of training new Christians to not only. Um, know Jesus but to follow him and to go back into a closed nation which by the way without mentioning the name of this nation it is the location on planet earth right now and for about the past I think five years maybe a little bit more of the largest revival in history millions of people literally are coming to Christ in a nation that if you watch the local news you would think quite to the contrary because of the oppression there spiritually So because of that reason, I look around the room at all of you guys, men and women, and I see a company of people operating together, following the flow of the Father's heart as empowered by the Holy Spirit. How about Gus on the drums over here? Thanks, Gus. That that was amazing. But let's not forget our newest bass player, Zia, who's what, 17? Zia's, huh? Sixteen. Sixteen-year-old young lady, carrying the anointing and the power of God as expressed through that bass guitar, and then and then Kenda got this bride up here singing and just the expression of the heart of God. And I was just reflecting back this morning in preparation: is Lord, what if Sarah Ruth was not allowed to bring those messages a month ago? <laughs> Yeah, horrible would be saying it strongly, and that's probably true, but it would at least be a, be a, a downgrade. And the, You see, I read a God of the Bible who's never up for downgrades. He's always up for upgrades. Whether it's your own personal life or whether it's the life of the entire church, God is a God who loves the flow that is moving forward. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. It's like the smallest seed, and it's planted, and it grows and expands. You see, the kingdom isn't getting smaller, and we're all just kind of holding on until, oh, Jesus, please come back, so that we can escape this horrible planet that we're trapped in. No, it's the opposite, y'all. The book of Acts was a starting point, and Paul is dealing with a starting point. We're going to get into that. And even through the life of Jesus, Paul is gleaning off of that life into the starting point. So besides healing and reconciliation, my heart is also to equip the church. To equip you with sound biblical theology on this issue of women in the church, women in ministry. Our theme verse of the series, write this reference down if you haven't already. And remember this one because... I want you to remember that the Apostle Paul wrote these words. Paul was raised in rabbinic Judaism before encountering a living Christ on the road to Damascus. So he was actually taught and ingrained deeply with the opposite of all that, were, that he espoused, that he demonstrated. Okay, But he wrote this in his first letter that he ever wrote to the church. <clears throat> For all of you... It's Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither ethnos, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one. Is there a difference? Absolutely, there's a difference between men and women. But in Christ, you're all one. We're all one. We all come together. We have this expression of God's heart, who God is spirit. It's the spirit and the truth. It's coming together to play such a vital role for the days of harvest that are upon us. You're all one, and if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to his promise. All of you, men and women, are heirs of the promise. After all, would the promise have been fulfilled without Sarah? <laughs> no, it takes two, doesn't it? It takes two. The promise, if you read Hebrews 11, was as much to Sarah as it was to Abraham. Abraham. This was a part of our inheritance, church. So if we limit God in saying a woman has not the same kind of, you know, whatever, however you want to word that, then we limit his inheritance. There's something at stake here that I don't know if you can tell I feel a little passionate about. I don't want to fight anybody over it. But I do want to be committed to the Bible. I want to be committed to the scripture. Like Jesus Paul's perspective on women had the Father's heart to unify. This might be kind of shocking to some of you, but this is demonstrated in Paul's life. But before we get to Paul, in uh, part two, I did a little expose on one of the great women of the 20th century. Does anybody remember who that was? She actually started one of the Pentecostal denominations, of which I have many friends that came out. Who has ever been a part of a four square church? Anybody? Yeah, a couple people over here. Amy Simple McPherson in the late, early 1900s. She started that denomination. A lady that came after her was a mighty healing evangelist named Catherine Coleman. And uh, today I want to highlight Heidi Baker, Let's go. <clears throat> i.e., Mama Heidi. I've been in a few of her meetings at Morningstar in Charlotte, Catch the Fire in Raleigh, Durham, uh, including we got to go to a small meeting at Duke University. You remember that? In 2015, where we got to chat with her and her husband, Roland, um, after that meeting. Uh, both Heidi and—we got a picture of her. Put that up there on the screen. I want y'all to—yeah, there she is. Mama Heidi in Mozambique. Both Heidi and her husband, Roland— Earn PhDs in theology. They're very learned people. Uh, Many people are surprised about that. Their their meetings are characterized by Holy Spirit manifestations and on the floor and laughter and falling and all the things that we love and we see the fruit from. But people can take from that that they're not committed to a, a theological, biblical understanding. I would say quite to the contrary. In fact, one of their personal assistants A guy named Ben came to UNC to complete his degree, and he passed on to me Roland Baker's doctoral dissertation that he had written in 2012 or 13, and that dissertation was on a biblical strategy on missions. So basically a rundown. In 1980, they'd started Iris Ministries, a nonprofit dedicated to ministry to the poor and to the preaching of the gospel in specifically developing nations. So by the early 90s, with her husband Roland, after more than a decade in the field, they had been missionaries in Asia and had started, and I've heard Heidi tell this story a a number of times, both in person and on podcasts. She said, we had started three nice churches. She's like, they were nice. You know, they were... They were fine. They were doing their weekly thing. A few people were getting saved. But by and large, there was something churning in their hearts of God saying there's something more. And um, by the early 90s, uh, well, I'm sorry, in 1994 or early 95, they went to Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship to hear about it, to experience what God they had heard God was doing in this local church in Toronto, Canada. And um, they went there and God changed everything. Heidi spent several days virtually frozen to the floor in an encounter with Jesus. She said that people would have to carry her just to use the bathroom and come back. And just, I think it was about a week, somewhere around there. It was several days to be exact. And during that time, among other heavenly encounters and words from Jesus that Heidi received, there was a prophetic word that was spoken in which the Lord asked, Do you want the nation of Mozambique? Do you want the nation of Mozambique? Heidi's heart was an emphatic, Yes, Lord. So in 1995, they moved to Mozambique, at the time one of the world's poorest nations, and the rest is history. Beginning with nothing, with a matter of, within a matter of months, they were given a dilapidated orphanage in Maputo with 80 children. From there, the ministry has expanded to include 5,000 churches in Mozambique alone and a total of 8,000 churches in 26 nations. An excerpt from this 2020 article in Christianity Today writes, I want anybody who is deaf to come to the front. Anybody who can't hear, God is going to heal tonight. Heidi Baker speaks over a powerful sound system into a pitch-black African night. We're in the dusty village of Chure, Mozambique, the 11th poorest nation on earth. No electricity or running water is available here. From their ragged clothes and bare feet, you can see the people are destitute. Two trucks have brought students from Pemba, Baker's Mission Center setting up open air screens and generator powered projectors they have just shown the Jesus film preaching followed and now a crowd of several hundred has gathered on the bare ground in front of the trucks for the climactic moment Heidi Baker excuse me <coughs> Heidi Baker known worldwide for her healing miracles spends a third of every year on the charismatic speaking circuit where people routinely fall to the floor in heavenly bliss or shake and laugh uncontrollably. They come enthralled to hear of Baker's miracles in places like Chiare. In recent years, she says 100% of the deaf in the Chiare area have been healed through prayer. Let me say that again, 100%. All who came to Jesus were healed. That's the biblical standard. I haven't personally seen it, have you? No, but does that mean God's not able? It just means not yet. He's able yet. We just haven't seen it yet. They've seen this in this one area of Mozambique. 100% of the deaf are healed. Not only that, she claims scores have been raised from the dead. Food has been multiplied. The crippled and the blind have been restored, and the gospel has spread like wildfire. Baker's Church Association now numbers 10,000 congregations, maybe more. So all of this through a woman whom, in partnership with her husband, preaches and teaches with passion, anointing, and demonstrates the fruit and the power of the gospel. So as I stated before, like Jesus, Paul's perspective on women was the Father's heart to unify and to expand all the ministry of the church. Paul was led by the Holy Spirit in his day to help people find the heart of God in the midst Now listen to this, in the midst of their less than perfect situations. I've I've taught world history for about 25 years. The story of world history, as I can tell, is a story of imperfection. It's a story of fallen world, sinful people, and fallen situations in need of restoration. Paul's world was no different. He had slavery in his world. You have the Roman brutal occupation of Israel. You had great slaughters of Christians. Did anybody ever read about Emperor Nero? He would use Christians as wick for his torches at his pagan orgies. They would burn the Christians to light their, their, their parties. That's just one of a few ways that they invented cruel and unusual torture. And punishment for these followers of Jesus. These are the types of scenarios and cultures in which we find this apostle who's had this radical encounter. This is where he's ministering. Yes, it's been a a male-dominated culture for centuries. This was not an endorsement of these cultural evils, obviously. Instead, God knew That throughout the rest of history, there would always be wars. We're praying for one right now. Genocides. There would always be one group oppressing another, etc. And he wanted to write his word in order that we could find hope. Hope with a capital H. Despite difficult situations. So, as I mentioned earlier with the example of my wife's teaching, Let's look at one of Paul's hotly debated statements. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 14, and there are three. We will deal specifically with two this morning. He says this, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Seems pretty straightforward, pretty cut and dry, right? Some would say, oh, that's kind of harsh and prickly. But yeah, this seems to be a very definitive statement. In a few minutes, we're going to return back to this passage and consider the context of it with the Corinthian church. But first, we must consider a groundwork, a foundation here. And that foundation is this. A glimpse of the Apostle Paul's off-the-record statements and viewpoints where Paul is not directly instructing on women in ministry. In Romans 16, at the end of his letter, Paul greets 24 people, and guess what? Six of them are women. Paul demonstrates an attitude far different than the Pharisees under whom he trained. Remember that. Who had an injunction against even speaking to a woman. For emphasis, while I'm using mostly the New King James Version, I'm going to use the Passion Translation, which provides in Romans 16 additional insight to the King James. It says this in um, Romans 16, starting in verse 1. Now let me introduce to you our dear and beloved sister in the faith, Phoebe a shining minister of the church in Centria. I'm sending her with this letter. What's the letter? It's the book of Romans. He sent the letter that had been penned by a scribe. In, his, in the apostle Paul's words, he sent it with none other than Phoebe, a woman. I'm sending her with this letter and ask that you shower her with the hospitality when she arrives. Embrace her, With honor as is fitting for one who belongs to the Lord and is set apart for him. That is an apostolic anointing. The word set apart literally is the apostolic commissioning. This woman, perhaps it would follow that she was appointed to come to all the churches. There wasn't just one many churches, probably hundreds, within the region of Rome and be the one to read the book of Romans, the letter to the church, to them, this woman, Phoebe. So provide her whatever she may need, for she's been a great leader and champion for many. I know, for she's been that even for me, Paul says. Give my love to Prisca and Aquila, otherwise known as Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is a female name, Aquila, a husband. And my partners in ministry serving the anointed one, Jesus, for they've risked their own lives to save mine. I'm so thankful for them. And not just I, but all the congregations among the non-Jewish people respect them for their ministry. Also give my loving greetings to all the believers in their house church. And greet Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the Roman province of Asia. For I love him dearly. And give my greetings to Miriam, who has toiled and labored extremely hard to benefit you. Sorry about my voice, y'all. Make sure that my relatives, Andronicus and Junia are honored, Junia is a, a woman, for they're my fellow captives who bear the distinctive mark of being outstanding and well-known apostles and who are joined into the anointed one before me. Please greet Tryphena and Tryphosa for they are women who have diligently served the Lord. To Persis who is much loved and faithful in her ministry for the Lord, I send my greetings. On down to verse 14, I cannot forget to mention my esteemed friends, Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas. I might be butchering those names, but, and all the brothers and sisters who meet with them, give my regards to Philogis, Julia, Nurus, and his sister, and also Olympus, And all the holy believers who meet with them. Greet each other with a holy kiss of God's love. And all the believers in all the congregations of the Messiah. Send their greetings to all of you. I'll remind you from a previous part in the series. Surely some of these very ones were in the upper room. With the 120 on Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. I'll remind you And if If you want to hear more, please go back and listen to the podcast. You can find them from our website or Apple or Spotify podcasts. You can just search for River Life. Listen, because it's also I need to bring out in the context of part four today is the massive heart of God, the father for women demonstrated by Jesus. His whole life and ministry was absolutely controversial. Because of just this one thing, he sat down with a Samaritan woman at the well among many, many others. And surrounding him among his disciples were many, many women. A woman, Mary, was the first to see a resurrected Christ and him speak to her. In our context, I think we have no idea the implications of what I'm saying. But in first century Palestine, this was... I don't even have words for it. This was groundbreaking, monumental. A closer look here. Phoebe is referred to as a deacon and was entrusted to deliver this letter throughout the churches of Rome. I've already mentioned that. Possibly read it to the churches throughout the region. And Junia, who is prominent among the apostles. Remember the quote that I read you from 1 Corinthians earlier? But yet, Junia is an apostle? I mean, How are you an apostle but you can't speak? Have you ever been an apostle that doesn't speak? It's kind of hard to do. In addition to this, some other evidence from 1 Corinthians 12. Remember where he's listing all the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12? He's talking about the body. We're all different parts of one body. There is no male or female distinction made in reference to spiritual gifts given or to their use. In specifying that the gifts are intended for all, Paul did not state that the gifts of men are intended for all while the gifts of women are intended for women and children. Another thing, in Philippians 4.2, he writes, I implore euodia... And I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here in Philippians four two and three, Paul refers to two women who labored with him in the gospel, or better translated. Fought together with me side by side is really what he's saying. The choice of the of these of this word cannot possibly be taken to suggest a supportive female role, but rather cast these two women as persons actively engaged with Paul in his ministry of communicating the gospel in Philippi. Let me also relay um, a quote by Dr. Sue and Larry Richards. I'd highly recommend a book. If you're interested, you want to jot this down to order off of Amazon. It's called Every Woman in the Bible. Every Woman in the Bible by Dr. Sue and Larry Richards. If you missed that, let me know afterwards. And they write about the implications of Paul's words about women. Paul's actions, not just words, clearly reveal Paul's basic attitude toward women. Paul is often portrayed as a chauvinist who wants nothing more than for women to shut up and stay home. Yet our look at the biblical data, i.e. what Paul's actions actually are, reveals quite a different person indeed. Paul's words to and about individuals make it clear that Paul had close and warm relationships with a number of women. Paul's descriptions of these women reveal that he saw them as partners in his ministry of spreading the gospel and as significant leaders in their own local congregations. In referring to Phoebe as a deaconess and to Julia as an apostle, we have evidence that Paul saw nothing unusual in women having significant offices in the early church. As far as women in the family are concerned, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 accorded women equal rights and responsibilities with their husbands. This equality was unthinkable in Judaism. This biblical data is especially vital if we're to appraise accurately these passages in which Paul dealt specifically with women in the home and the church. Alternative interpretations are hotly argued for or against each of these passages, yet The data about Paul's basic attitude toward women that we have developed here makes one thing clear. Any interpretation of such passages which imply a negative or repressive view of women, such as women should not serve in leadership, which many churches aspire to, simply cannot be correct. So how do we deal with these difficult passages Like I mentioned above, there's three of them mainly. 1 Corinthians 11, which we won't get into as much today, is about the head coverings. How many are familiar with 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings? I will ask this, for all those who don't believe a woman should teach, do they also have all the heads covered? I mean, if you're going to be consistent, right? I mean, I know there are those traditions that have that. I'm just saying there's many that don't. So if you're going to accuse like someone like me of picking and choosing, well, I don't know what is more picking and choosing. In 1 Corinthians 14, we read above, it regards the issue of women speaking in church. And in 1 Timothy 2, admittedly the most difficult passage, referencing women teaching and having authority. In the church. Therefore, when considering these passages, we must deal with them in light of Paul's overall attitude. Like, for example, his teaching on tongues in the church in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Paul was dealing with specific problem issues in each of these passages. He wasn't trying to limit, restrict, or prohibit tongues. That would be ridiculous because at the end of the chapter, he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues as much as I do. No, as a spiritual father, though, there was a need for boundaries in order that the ministry overall and even the ministry of women might grow and step into freedom. Not the opposite. Again, from Dr. Richards, Paul was not a reformer, but a transformer. He did not challenge institutions. He challenged individuals. Paul was convinced that anyone in any situation could please God. And he encouraged believers to use whatever opportunities they had to do so. So let's look at understanding the Father's heart in 1 Corinthians 14. The context is one local church in modern-day Turkey... On the peninsula that we know as Asia Minor. It's the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14, let me remind you, is all about mainly what? It's all about the use of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 has the love portion in it that we know from weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. It's all a teaching about how spiritual gifts should be demonstrated. Because remember, he says, man, you can prophesy the pain off the wall. I'm paraphrasing. You can prophesy the pain off the wall, but if you don't have love, what are you? You're a clanging gong, a rattling cymbal. It doesn't mean anything without love. In the context of love, put these passages. How is it? This is 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, question mark, whenever you come together... Each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or, or at, the, at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy, one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. On down to verse 39. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Let all things be done decently and in order. How do you interpret that? Well, let me remind you of this quote by my mentor, Jim Hill. Many of you know him. His quote is this To man, order is to line up, like these chairs, things neatly in a row. But to God, order is to let things flow, like those trees in the forest, like the skies, the stars in the sky. Now, which order do you prefer? Isn't that good? In this particular church, or groups of churches in Corinth, there were a few women who were returning to the influence of the prevailing demonic principality of the region, who was the goddess Diana, otherwise known in the Greek as Artemis, who you can Google it, was a fertility goddess, fertility goddess worship. Her main temple was in Ephesus, Which is where Timothy was the pastor. We're gonna deal with 1 Timothy chapter 2 next. This is the context of where they are and what is going on around that. More on that in a moment. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says this, verse 8 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner, also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness. Okay, side note again, are we going to ban braided hair, gold rings, and pearls? I don't think so. With good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There's a lot here to unpack. I'm going to give you the beginning part. You can dive in it (laughs) on your own as well. I've sat with this for a long time, a long time this week, but also in the preceding months before the beginning of the series, trying to and asking God for the Father's heart. Timothy, as I said, is pastoring in the church in Ephesus, where he had been sent to correct serious problems that had emerged there. Out of the first recorded revival in the book of Acts, it was the first what we call like i mentioned a revival in the middle east right now it's the first move of the holy spirit in a given region and churches that the church ever knew of was in this city in modern day turkey called ephesus but out of this comes some serious issues another note revivals are awesome and necessary we pray for them every day however They do create messes within the church. (laughs) However, the consequences of not having revival are obvious. That creates messes of its own, not having revival. So you choose, which would you rather have, man's messes or God's messes? I don't know about you, but I'll take God's messes all day long. Well, this was a bit of a God mess here that they were dealing with. As I said earlier, Ephesus was the premier city in modern-day Turkey and the site of the temple, the temple of Diana. And it's clear from 1 Timothy that many in in Ephesians had strayed from the focus on Jesus and godly living that Paul urged in his letters. In fact, you can see that many false teachers, you read about the false teachers, that many false teachers (laughs) had seriously corrupted the church in Ephesus, which included a false demonic worship of the goddess of fertility. We see this often in church history. For example, in Latin America, many of the pagan godless practices of some of the ancient tribes in Middle America, when Christianity was brought, that even to this day you can find an intermingling of mostly Catholicism With ancient goddess, God, goddess worship and pagan practices. This isn't uncommon. And this is what Paul and Timothy are having to deal with. And trying to rectify, not for restriction of anyone or any gift like tongues. But quite to the contrary, so that the Holy Spirit could flow. So that the revival that had begun could continue. And I would argue that it did. In fact, false teaching had seriously corrupted it, which included that worship of the... uh, uh, Diana was often considered, I found by a historian, a goddess associated with fertility and childbirth and the protection of women during labor. Any woman going into labor ever cried out for protection, not from Diana, but from the one true God. Like you can relate, especially in the ancient world without modern medicine. This had been your upbringing. You're now a Christian following Jesus, yet the time to give birth comes along. There might be a temptation. I'm just saying. Like, oh, I just, uh, just, just right now, however, they, I don't know if they prayed, if they offered, I don't know how all that worked out in practice. But this is in the church of Jesus. In chapter 2, among other matters, Paul corrected certain women needing to learn rather than to teach and domineer. Because I think what becomes clear, if you really look into it, is that there were specific women who had specific issues that we have just discussed. That through the worship of this goddess began to incorrectly speak out to domineer, to try to take over a room. Not particularly in the situation of a woman, but I've seen people try to do that within the church. How many people have ever seen that? Well, you don't have to raise your hand, but I can tell by a nodding of heads. We fight not against flesh and blood, never against a person who I believe is, for whatever reason, out of line, but There is a responsibility within a pastoral covering and eldership to 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 cover the congregation in order that not to restrict that person, but in order that the flow of the Holy Spirit might continue among us. So in chapter two, Paul's simply saying there are women who need to not talk right now. You need to learn. In other words, this principality over the region, Diana, had influenced these new female believers, which had led to improper teaching, out-of-order speaking, and control issues within that local church. Paul was simply bringing pastoral boundaries to this local church in order that the flow of the Holy Spirit may continue in this revival culture. From all we've established here, this is clear. His instructions for Ephesus were never meant to be a universal for all churches everywhere at all times in church history. I'll refer back to the issue of tongues and prophecy from those same chapters of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I've heard it argued. There are many church traditions that would say, hey, if there's going to be a prophetic word, it can only be two or three. Because the Bible says it. I'm like, the Holy Spirit I know, the Father heart God of I know, he's a God of expansion, not of restriction. He's a God that's moving forward and growing, not let's pull back and fit everything into our theological boxes. That just doesn't seem to fit. So what I'm making an argument about in this case of genders is equal to the thing about spiritual gifts, Paul said, I desire that you would all prophesy. Everyone can prophesy one by one in the text that we read. It's clear this was never meant to be a universal for all churches in all places. Let me conclude. Are you guys all right? I hope this is helpful. Some final thoughts from Dr. Richards. What seems significant to me in this debate over women in the church, is that in focusing the argument on a limited number of three passages in the epistles of Paul, most have failed to take into account data from the New Testament as a whole. In earlier chapters, we saw that Christ's relationships with women were truly transformational. He broke the rigidly hierarchical patterns long established in rabbinic Judaism, He frequently gave priority to women and honored them as disciples and witnesses of his resurrection. When we consider this mass of evidence from a New Testament, from the New Testament as a whole, we are reminded of an important hermeneutical principle. All that means is principles for interpreting the Bible correctly. Here is the most important principle. Scripture does not disagree with itself. Our interpretation of any given passage must not only be consistent with the immediate context, but also with the entirety of the whole Word of God. Where two or more interpretations of a passage dealing with women exist, we must prefer an interpretation in accord with the transformation of women's roles as witnessed to in the Gospels, in Acts and in the incident, incidental or off-the-record statements about women in Paul's epistles. Remember, as Pastor Bill Johnson says, God will never violate his word, but he will often violate our understanding of his word. And nowhere is it more fitting than in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Jesus is perfect theology can we rally around that statement and our hearts at river life and as a part of the kingdom, not just river life, our hearts as citizens of the kingdom are that the greater works that Jesus spoke of in John 14, he said, these works I'm doing, you shall do and even greater things that these works will be done by men and women. In fact, let me digress here in my conclusion. I remember in 2001, I was in Africa and Zimbabwe, and this African pastor got up and taught this. He said, listen, husbands, if Jesus said that these works that he's doing, that he desires that his bride, that's us, the church, would do these and even greater, he pointed to us and he said, what about your bride? Is your bride, is your desire that your bride's ministry would be even greater and far surpass yours? He goes, because this is the father heart of God. This is a biblical model. I was like, wow. Well, if you say it to me that way, Lord, here's her. Take the mic, preach the payoff. Preach with such power and anointing that everybody else is like, yeah, Pastor Matthew, he's, he's pretty good. But let's give the, no, this isn't a, a, a statement in preference of one over the other. It's a unity. It's a reconciling our hearts, again, because the harvest is here. And it is great. Men and women and children and everyone that calls upon the name of Jesus walking and leading together in unity. If you come on Friday night to that wildfires movement, you're going to see that. Teenagers like Sia up here and Anna Grace up here. Teenagers loving Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. I've been in cultures like in South America where if you're under 35, you really don't get to do anything in the church. Because young people are seen as being too risky, too spiritually immature, there's too much propensity for things to get messy. And I mean, I literally like I I can tell you I can point you to people who live there. And and that I would I would talk to the young people, the, the young adults and the teenagers, and they would just be this divine frustration because they had this gift, this burning in them. But somewhere along the line, something happened. See, this doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Something happened, and the the people who were trying to be responsible said, if you're under 35, and I'm just estimating, it's just young people. And you see, God is breaking beyond those things. Obviously, there's a role for authority. All men and women are under authority. Not just of God, but from the men and women in our life. I'm under Byron's authority, my pastor. I'm under Becky's authority. My pastor, if they call me and they they have an issue, they want me to do something or to correct anything or whatever, even at the beginning of this series, I sent my notes to Pastor Byron. said, before I even begin to preach these words, would you test them? I want to know if you believe this is the Lord, this is biblically true, and we're in agreement. Obviously, he gave me the thumbs up, or I hope I wouldn't be speaking is that men and women walking and leading together in unity in the kingdom, where there is neither male nor female, but where love is expressed through unity. Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. To get more information, check out riverlifefellowship.com.